Well, good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, uh, you can turn to Philippians 4 as we continue our uh, series, Joy in All Circumstances. We'll walk through an extremely practical passage where the Apostle Paul explains how Christ followers can rest in, in God. And in the middle of this passage, we find one of the most prominent statements in the entire New Testament. One of these very familiar passages, one of these you know, coffee cup, t-shirt, sort of bumper sticker verses that we are very familiar with. Paul writes, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'm not exaggerating or are speaking in hyperbole when I say few verses in all of Scripture frustrate me more than Philippians 4.6. Because I, I wrestle with anxiety occasionally, and from personal experience, I would argue that the single worst piece of advice you can give an anxious person is, hey, don't be anxious. Right? If your spouse, your, your friend, your child, your neighbor, your co-worker says to you, you know, I'm feeling very anxious right now, do not respond with, oh yeah, well, have you considered not being anxious? I mean, maybe you could just, just stop, you know, put a pin in that, circle back to it later. When I'm facing worry, when I'm, I'm fighting with fear and doubt, when I'm overwhelmed with stress, when I wake up at two o'clock in the morning and I start playing the what if game in my mind until I reach the most terrifying and troubling, albeit hypothetical outcome, I'm not encouraged by Paul's charge to not be anxious. The truth is, in those low moments, Repeating the phrase, don't be anxious, over and over again in my mind provides very little help in satisfying my anxious heart. But we should realize that even though the Apostle Paul wrote in chapter 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, even though he adds later in this chapter, I've learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound and any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. Even though Paul wrote those words, he still experienced anxiety himself. See an example of this in Acts chapter 18. After being chased out of Thessalonica and Berea by an angry mob and receiving uneven results in Athens, Paul comes to Corinth, and, and Scripture records that he experienced a, a restless night there, a sleepless night in Corinth, and, and Luke records that starting in verse 9, the Lord spoke to him in a vision and said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, but, but go on speaking, and don't be silent, for I'm with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And then we see from there that 
that Paul goes on and he spends 18 more months preaching in the Corinthian church. Now, of course, when you're riddled with anxiety, you shouldn't anticipate God's encouragement to come through an audible voice, through a dream or a vision or some sort of supernatural way. Not to say that God couldn't speak in that way if he wanted to. But this doesn't often happen. So you shouldn't expect this type of encouragement from God, but you shouldn't expect God to be silent in these situations either. Psalm 34 says the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Now, last week I, I experienced it firsthand. You know, after Lacey and I uh, spent a few hours cleaning and rearranging furniture in our house, every speck of dust found its way into my nose. And as a result, I was slightly congested. And once again, it was only a small amount of congestion. So one night at 2 a.m., I wake up from a deep sleep and I realize I'm having a little bit of difficulty breathing. Now, to be clear, it was nothing major. My breathing was just marginally harder than usual. But this is a summary of how my mind spun in the middle of that night. It started with a reasonable what-if question. What if my breathing gets worse? And then it escalated rather quickly from there. What if I start gasping for air? What if I don't make it to the hospital in time? What if my wife becomes a widow and my children become fatherless? In four moves... My mind went from zero to death and destruction in under a minute. We all know how easily this can happen. But on this particular night, I didn't sit with the worst case scenario for long because in that particular moment, I followed Paul's counsel. I punched back against anxiety with prayer and thanksgiving. I took my what-ifs directly to God, and he stopped the spiral. And a few minutes later, I found rest spiritually and literally because I went back to sleep. And so what Paul gives us in our text, these instructions, they don't always yield a quick resolution. He doesn't offer a one-size-fits-all approach which is 100% guaranteed to completely eradicate every measure of anxiety, fear, worry, and doubt from your heart. But he does give several practical steps for helping us move closer and closer to the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. So let's read verses 1 through 9 together. Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Sintichi, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together, with Clement and the rest of the fellow's workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, my brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now before we start working through our outline, we should note that, that Paul assumes his readers are, are Christ followers. And his ultimate goal is helping us experience the peace of God. Instead of rising and falling based on our circumstances, he wants us resting in God's sovereignty, but you must understand you can't have the peace of God until you have peace with God, which means if, if you're not a Christ follower, before you worry too much about horizontal peace, you must deal with, with vertical peace. In other words, before you can rest in God, you must be redeemed by God. And at, at the end of the service, as we always do, we'll give you an opportunity to do just that. We won't manipulate you, pressure you, or, or coerce you in any way. But if you find yourself interested, intrigued, or, or gripped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we'd, we'd love to have a conversation with you about that. And so just, just keep that in mind, that you can't have the peace of God unless you have peace with God. And Paul is assuming that you have peace with God, and now he's going to tell you how to get the peace of God. So this is our, that's our, our main question for this morning. How do we encounter the peace of God in the midst of a chaotic, scary, broken world? How do we find rest in the Lord? First, we stand firm in the Lord. Verse 1 starts with a therefore, which connects it to the warning at the end of chapter 3. Um, remember in verses 18 and 19, uh, Paul writes, Many of whom I've often told you about, now tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. He goes on to say that they have their minds set on earthly things, that they glory in their shame, their God is their belly, their end is destruction. And as we discussed last week, when we read those verses your temptation is often looking at that and then critiquing those around you. And if you aren't careful, your, your pride takes you to this place where you get a similar mindset to the Pharisee in Luke 18 who prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people. God, I'm so grateful that I'm not like these robbers, these evildoers, these adulterers, or even this tax collector. So the application is not some people out in the world are walking down the road to destruction, but look at us, we're killing it. The application is because they are walking down the road to destruction, I should recognize, you should recognize our own vulnerability to our sin and we should stay on guard. We should remain vigilant. We shouldn't give Satan a foothold. And so on the heels of that warning at the end of chapter 3, and a few tender expressions of love at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul urges the Philippians to stand firm. His charge here is 
to stick with it, to endure, to never give up on the Christian walk. Stand firm by following faithful examples. Stand firm by avoiding the patterns of the enemies of the cross. Stand firm by remembering your citizenship is in heaven. But don't miss that, that prepositional phrase after the command, stand firm in the Lord. As Tony Meredia explains, Paul doesn't simply tell the church to stand firm. He tells them to, the way in which they will persevere in the Lord. Our strength isn't in how long we've been Christians or how much we know the Bible or how many mission trips we've been on. Our strength for standing firm is in our union with Christ. As we often say, the same grace which saves us from death sustains us in life. So stand firm in the Lord. Now before we move to the next couple verses, uh, we should mention we could pull verses 2 and 3 out for a whole separate sermon on gospel reconciliation, but on a certain level, once you experience the peace of God, you'll strive for peace with others. Once you've received unending mercy and grace and love from God, you'll naturally pass smaller measures of the same mercy, grace, and love onto others. So let's break down the conflict brewing in the Philippian church. Verse 2, I entreat you, Euodia, and I treat Sintichi to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So first, we stand firm in the Lord. Second, we agree in the Lord. Now, this is an interesting moment. Imagine that, that you're sitting on a pew in the first century church of Philippi, and you're listening to the initial reading of Paul's letter. And you're drinking in every ounce of, of rich doctrine. You're hanging on every word of wise counsel. And then, all of a sudden, after speaking in general terms, after encouraging everyone to stand firm in the Lord, the apostle names names. You know, so far, when speaking on unity, he's made these general appeals, but here he calls out specific people. He essentially says, hey, Euodia, hey, Sintichi, y'all need to get it together. Y'all need to clean up this mess. Y'all need to quit your bickering. Now, we aren't provided with with much information about these two women or the source of their conflict, because Paul's primary concern here is stamping out the division without causing any more rippling effects into the rest of the congregation. We do know from Acts chapter 16 that the church in Philippi was planted by Paul and Silas after they stumbled across a meeting of God-fearing women who were gathering for prayer by the riverside. And we can't say for certain, but you can assume that possibly Euodia and Sintichi could have been part of that initial small group. But we do know in verses 2 and 3 that Paul calls them fellow workers. It says they've labored with him for the sake of the gospel. He adds their names are in the book of life. So we, we can gather here 
that they were both genuine, authentic followers of Jesus Christ who were crossed up over something. And even though we don't know what that something is, we can learn from Paul's process for solving the problem. He gives two instructions for resolving conflict inside the church. First, he instructs the two women to resolve the matter by having the same mind. Throughout Philippians, he has charged the church to prioritize unity. Chapter 1, stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for faith of the gospel. Two, Chapter 2, complete my joy by being in the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Now notice, he doesn't take sides in their dispute. He doesn't say, Euodia, you're right. Sintichi, you're wrong. Apologize to each other. Instead, he entreats them, or he, he urges them, he begs them to agree in the Lord. And since we know that, that Paul was never afraid of correcting theological error, we can safely assume their division was probably based on preference and not truth. And if you've been in church for any period of time, then you've likely seen how quickly this type of conflict can arise. As the old saying goes, when you put five Baptists in a room, you'll get at least six opinions. Your churches draw battle lines over any number of things. Worship music. Sunday school curriculum. Programming. Outreach, budgets. I mean, over the years, I've even heard stories about tense divisions surfing over silly things like styles of carpet and colors of paint. But whatever was causing disunity between these two women, Paul insisted they lay it aside for the sake of the gospel. Now, we should realize when Paul says, agree in the Lord, he isn't calling us to agree on all things. We're talking about unity, not uniformity. As we conduct ministry together, we will have different opinions, different priorities, different agendas, different ideas, and different preferences, and that's okay. In one sense, we should celebrate that diversity. But in another sense, we can't allow... Secondary things to distract us from primary things. We must remain captivated by the same purpose of growing and going with the gospel. We must value our mission more than our preferences. We must recalibrate to a mindset where we're less concerned with how changes affect us and more concerned with how they might engage others. Our best bet for maintaining unity collectively, saying individually, I have my opinions, I have my agendas, I have my preferences, but I will never allow any of them to derail our gospel responsibility. So Paul says when you have conflict with a brother and sister in the church, that the, the best thing that you can do is go to them and work it out. Talk it out together. Go to lunch, go have coffee, and just have that awkward conversation and work out your disagreement. Agree in the Lord. But Paul realizes 
that sometimes it takes more than that. Sometimes it, it takes a village. And so Paul, secondly, he calls for an intervention from the church. You know, the, the best course of action is going to be resolving the difference between the two parties, having them work it out. But if the issue gets to a point where you can't find resolution, you may have to pull others into it. Ideally, Euodia and Sintichi would have accepted Paul's counsel and they would have began the work of reconciliation together, but more than likely, their, their fight had reached a point where they required a mediator. And so Paul calls on a brother who he, he is only named as true companion in the text. And he asks him to help these women. And by asking for his assistance... He reminds us of the important role the church family can play in the reconciliation process. As one commentator notes, there's a difference between meddling and seeking gospel-centered reconciliation. As members of the church, we must eagerly maintain the spirit of unity. In other words, your business should never be meddling in everyone else's business, but occasionally when the division and discord of a few spirals out to the whole body, every member should be praying for and striving towards a resolution where forgiveness is offered and relationships are restored. The truth is, if you pursue authentic community with other believers, you will experience conflict. And when you do, Paul gives you a simple two-step process for working it out. And you'll never agree on everything, but you can agree in the Lord. And then we get to verse 4. Paul goes from conflict to a command to rejoice. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So third, we rejoice in the Lord. Throughout the letter of Philippians, Paul covers several topics. He offers notes of rebuke, correction, and warning. He speaks on performance, partnership, unity, and generosity. But above all else, from cover to cover, his principal theme has been joy. In chapter 1, Paul prays with joy. He rejoices that Christ is proclaimed. He says he'll remain living on earth for the Philippians' joy and faith. Chapter 2, he asks them to complete his joy. He rejoices with them. He, he sends Epaphroditus to them so they might rejoice. He tells them to receive him with joy. In chapter 3, he charges them to rejoice in the Lord. At the start of chapter 4, he tells them they are his joy. And then here once again, in verse 4, he writes, Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say, rejoice. And this is not a suggestion. This is not a recommendation. This is not a good piece of advice. This is a command. If you're in Christ, you're commanded to rejoice always. Now, certainly there will be times when you're grieving, when you fall into despair, when you're gripped by fear, when you're riddled with doubt, when you're overwhelmed with sorrow. But in during those seasons, joy will be the last thing on your heart and mind, but joy is still attainable. 
mean, consider Paul's situation when he penned this letter. From a human standpoint, his circumstances were a disaster. He was in a Roman prison. He was chained to a guard around the clock, and he was burdened by the real possibility of his impending execution and all of his plans for preaching the gospel, all of his plans for planting churches, all of his plans for for training leaders, for sharing the gospel, were on hold. He was stuck. And to make matters worse, as we saw in chapter 1, on the outside, rival preachers were slandering him. They were saying all over the Roman Empire, if, if Paul was truly the apostle to the Gentiles, then why is he in prison? Surely he's, he's sinned against God. He's forsaken his ministry and, and God is punishing him. And yet, despite unimaginable circumstances, Paul tells the Philippians, I'm still rejoicing. My friends have disappointed me, but I'm still rejoicing. My plans have changed, but I'm still rejoicing. My possessions are gone, but I'm still rejoicing. My situation is grim, but I'm still rejoicing. And so the question is, where where is that joy coming from? And the answer is obvious. It comes from the Lord. The, The command is rejoice in the Lord. As I heard another preacher explain it, you know, most people think you get joy when you receive what you desire, but true joy comes when you realize what you deserve. The realization of what you deserve, which is judgment, and what you've received instead, which is salvation, should drive your heart to great joy. It's not about getting what you want, it's about being grateful for all that you have in Christ. And you have to discipline yourself to think this way. When you're rooted in Christ, you won't be shaken by circumstances. Even when you're facing a terrible diagnosis, a painful burden, a relational conflict, a lasting affliction, or a tragic loss, you can still rejoice because every bit of bad news in the world pales in comparison to the good news of the gospel. So Paul says... Rejoice in the Lord. Look at verse 6. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So finally, we trust in the Lord. When Paul says don't be anxious, he's He's obviously talking about a a sinful level of anxiety. We should understand there is such a thing as as good anxiety. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul mentions having anxiety for all the churches. And in the Gospels, uh, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Um, He he also experienced an intense burden in the garden. And so so you can have a, a positive anxiety which comes from a genuine place of concern for others, but you must realize if you aren't careful, godly concern can easily move to sinful anxiety. John Piper defines anxiety like this. He writes, anxiety seems to be an intense desire for something, accompanied by a fear of the consequences of not receiving it. So you understand there's nothing wrong with 
having intense desire for something. For example, parents, you should have an intense desire for seeing your children raised in the Lord. But if your intense desire changes from a God-centered hope to a man-centered fear, worry, or doubt, then you are probably shifting from godly concern to sinful anxiety, especially if you find yourself fixating on the worst possible scenario more often than not. And so I want to give you a few questions to, to help you determine if this shift has, has taken place. First, ask yourself, is most of your time thinking about this issue unproductive thinking? In other words, are you considering real solutions or are you drowning in what-if questions? Like I was talking about earlier. That example I gave back at the beginning of the sermon was just a bunch of what-if questions that took me to a place that was not helpful to anyone, right? So are you contemplating real solutions or are you drowning in what-if questions? Second, are you forsaking responsibilities because of it? Are you becoming so engrossed with concerns or a particular issue that's starting to affect your marriage? It's starting to affect your work? It's starting to affect your children? Third, is it, is it damaging your body? Has your anxiety reached a point where your body is sounding the alarm through ulcers, through stomach pain, through high blood pressure, headaches, lack of sleep, etc.? And then finally, are you losing hope rather than finding answers in God's Word? Instead of applying His truth in thought and deed, are you sinking further and further into despair? And so those questions help you to identify the problem and determine if you are dealing with sinful anxiety. And once you identify the problem, the world will offer you countless solutions. You may hear recommendations to try acupuncture, exercise, aromatherapy, yoga, medicine, and deep breathing. While some of these practices can provide short-term relief, they don't provide long-term resolution because they don't deal with the root issue. We must realize on a certain level, anxiety exists where faith doesn't. And thankfully, in verses 6-9, through nine, Paul gives us three steps for restoring faith to anxious hearts. The first one's in verse 6. The primary remedy for anxiety is prayer. Paul says, in everything. In every circumstance, in every situation, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I love how Peter says this in 1 Peter 5, 7. He says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. In the Greek, cast also means hurl. So literally, Peter's saying, hurl your worries at Jesus. Throw them as hard as and as fast as you can at him. Remember, Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, to be honest, for, for many of us, the casting is easy, but the leaving is hard. All right, we, we can throw our troubles at Jesus for a moment. But then you finish praying. Then you finish Sunday worship. Then you finish 
talking with a friend who's encouraged you and you say, okay, Jesus, I trust you with my problem. I'm, I'm laying my problem at the foot of the cross and I'm walking away, but then the next hour, the next day, the next week, you walk over there and you pick it right back up. That isn't casting aside your anxieties. That's temporarily parting with your anxieties. Peter says, throw them at Jesus and leave them with Jesus. He can handle it. You can trust him with it. And then we go down to verses 8 and 9, and, and Paul gives the second and third steps. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So once you're praying the right prayers, and you start filling your mind with the right thinking, when you feel anxiety creeping in, you intentionally shift your thoughts back to the truth. You replace the lie with the truth. So let's say the largest source of worry for you in your life is your finances. Maybe you're a small business owner and, and you're worried about where the next paycheck will come from or covering payroll for the next week. Or maybe you live on a fixed income and you're worried about when the next unexpected uh, expense will arise. So in these moments, you have to stop the spiral of what-if questions and take yourself back to the truth. What does the scripture say? Well, in Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't worry, saying, what will you eat or what will you drink or what will we wear? For idolaters eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And so when you pray the right prayers, when you engage with the right thinking, you'll be driven to the right action. Paul says, set your mind on what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. And as you do, as you think about these things, you take what you've learned, received, heard, and seen, and you live it out. And so this is the formula for taking steps towards acquiring the peace of God. Consistent prayer, healthy thought patterns, and obedient living leads to experiencing the peace of God. In John 14, 27, Christ told his disciples in the upper room on the eve of his crucifixion, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. You know, it's easy to feel some amount of peace in life when, when people like you. When money is, is flowing in, when your job is secure, when you're living in a beautiful setting. But when a friend stabs you in the back, when the stock market 
drops, when you fall short of your goal, when you're devastated, when you're agitated, when you're miserable, you struggle with finding peace. And the simple reason for that is if you look to the world, you'll never maintain reliable peace. But if you look to Christ, you'll find eternal peace. See, Christ gave a beautiful promise to the 11 men in the upper room in the future church. He was leaving soon, but he wasn't leaving without bestowing one final gift. Listen to what commentator Matthew Henry wrote about this parting gift. So when Christ was about to leave the world, he made his will. His soul he committed to his father. His body he bequeathed to Joseph. His clothes fell to the Roman soldiers. His mother he left in the care of John. But what would he leave his poor disciples, who had left all for him? Silver and gold he had none, but he left him that which was infinitely better, his peace. He left us with his peace. Church, do you have his peace? In his book, Encounters with God, Encounters with Jesus, excuse me, Tim Keller shares a wonderful analogy about the peace which Christ secured for us on the cross. He writes, imagine that you're a billionaire and you're carrying two $10 bills in your pocket. And when you get out of your cab, you give the driver one of your tens to pay your fare. And then later in the day, you discover that both tens are gone from your wallet. Either you accidentally handed the driver both bills or you dropped the second one somewhere along the way. But the question is, how long would you fret over those lost $10? Would you be upset? Would you let it disrupt your day? Would you file a police report and demand they question the cab driver? Of course not. You have nine zeros in your bank account. You're going to shrug your shoulders and move on because you are way too wealthy to be worried about such a small loss. And Paul argues that if you're in Christ, you should have the same type of billionaire mindset. When someone criticizes you, when someone lets you down, when something doesn't go according to plan, when everything in your life seems to be falling apart, it's only $10. It's nothing compared to the immeasurable riches which are offered to you in Christ. So Paul says, stand firm in the Lord, agree in the Lord, trust in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's practical advice for experiencing peace in our hearts and in our minds. 
But Lord, I'm sure that everyone in this room will admit that one time or another, or even now, this, this peace that Paul talking is talking about eludes us. That we, we feel restless, we feel unsettled, we feel, uh, we feel broken, we feel like things are, are slightly off. So Father, my prayer this morning for everyone under the sound of my voice is that you would illuminate the blind spots for us. You would help us see what is standing in our way from having this peace. What's, what's hindering us? What's stopping us? What's burdening us? What's killing our, our joy? Lord, help us to see the things that are, are, are stopping us from experiencing the fullness of Christ. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. We thank you that he made peace with you so that we could have peace, the peace of you, in life and in death. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.